Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, by water in the Spirit we are made your children. And so we pray that uh, you would open our uh, minds and our hearts to understanding better uh, the idea of the gift of baptism in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I got rid of the handkerchiefs for this week, and, uh, and we're going to spend uh, this class, and I hope that it can be interactive. Um, is that better? Yeah, it's a little bit better than the feedback we had before. Uh, talking about the nature of baptism, because there were some really good questions that came up at the end of the last class, and so talking about uh, what baptism actually is and what it does for us as believers. To that end, it's a limited time offer, but there are two books up here. Uh, that afterwards, uh, if you uh, want uh, to take a look, uh, this is one that we actually give to every parent who has a baby baptized here by a guy named John Sartell, but Christian parents should know about infant baptism. And then a book of two essays, one by John Stott and one by Alec Motyer, uh, on the nature of baptism from an Anglican uh, perspective. And I don't have a, a lot of them, but they're free to whoever uh, would uh, like one. So... Afterwards, come up and, and, and help yourself. Don't be uh, shy. In fact, if you think, well, I don't want anyone seeing me take that because they might think I don't know what I'm talking about, uh, two of the clergy from the Advent were like, ooh, can I have one? And I said, no, you can't have one. I said, you can order your own. Uh, so, well, last week where we left it was uh, we were talking about uh, in the book of Acts, uh, the church in Ephesus and uh, these disciples of John who had never even heard of the Holy Spirit, or at least the Holy Spirit as it pertains to his indwelling uh, within the life of the believer. And so they received the baptism of Jesus, and then uh, Paul uh, laid hands and prayed on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And so we got into a conversation about that, which was an exceptional event uh, in the life of the church. In fact, it only happens uh, two other places. And the normative uh, pattern in the Bible, which is uh, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and thereby receiving the Holy Spirit and then being baptized. Right? That's sort of the normative pattern. Uh, but we're going to actually unpack that a little bit even more. So at any point, if you need to say, wait a minute, but I thought this, or wait a minute, I have a question, you can, uh, you can stop me at any uh, moment. Okay, well, one of the things that we know about baptism is that it was instituted by Jesus himself, right? So one of the very last things that Jesus said to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is probably a verse you should memorize. Uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all that I have taught you. And, uh, and uh, a friend of mine uh, once justified his fear of flying by the next verse. And I said, well, why are you so afraid of flying? Aren't you trusting in the Lord? And he says, well, the Lord promised to be low. I will be with you until the very end of the age. Uh, and so, um, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. Idiot. So... Uh, it was instituted by Jesus and the practice of the church from the day of Pentecost onward. And the parallel, or actually the continuation of the Old Testament uh, sign of circumcision uh, given to male members of uh, the people Israel, uh, is strong even in the way the New Testament talks about baptism, uh, using it as the point of comparison as to what baptism is uh, for us. And so it really is the duty of every Christian to ask for baptism for himself 
and for his children and of the ordained minister to press upon his congregation this obligation and privilege. So if you look at the old prayer book, you have to have a really good excuse not to get your baby baptized. And it used to be the case that you would get your child baptized pretty soon uh, after uh, they were born. Uh, now with medicine being the way that it is, you know, there's no fear that, uh, of, of the child dying or anything like that, and it doesn't seem of great necessity. So we kind of wait. And um, I've even seen people wait because... Uh, in my last church, there was a youth minister named Craig Vickerman, who's a good man, and is in Texas now, and uh, his wife, and Craig played rug rugby in South Africa, and he's an enormous man, and so when they had their daughter, Althea, they waited until the family could come in from South Africa. Um, well, I'll just say, it, I don't know what she looks like now, but at the time, she seemed to inherit her father's genes. And, uh, and she was oh, about three years old, and so she was much too big to hold and not quite tall enough to lean over the font. And so we worked it out where I'd baptize her and Craig would hold her. So we were going along and everything was going well and she was kind of looking around and she seemed to be enjoying it somewhat. And then, she's, uh, then we got to the uh, affirmation, you know, the renunciations and the affirmations. And we, I kid you not, when we got to the, do you reject Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? She reached up and grabbed him by the neck and blood started to trickle down his throat. And Craig said, I renounce them! It was just a, a wonderful uh, view and image of that. Uh, and uh, moral of the story is, don't wait till your children are three years old. Uh, and people will say, well, I want them to be able to make that decision for themselves. One, I would just counter that with, you know, if we took that same approach, the way that we often approach our children's spiritual lives, of I don't want to force anything on them, to any other sphere of our own lives and raising them, uh, we'd be in big trouble. Oh, you don't want to go to school? I don't want to force it on you. You don't have to go to school. Right? No child is ever going to end up on a psychiatrist's couch saying, my parents made me go to church. Now, uh, it is if you're doing it in an oppressive and heavy-handed way and there's a total divorce of your actions and your faith. That's a whole other issue. Uh, but uh, the other thing, too, is that actually when adults are baptized in the New Testament, uh, there's not an expectation that they're going to be able to have their entire acts together at all. Right? That there's no sort of question like, you know, I didn't read in Acts where uh, Paul baptized the Philippian jailer's family and then he sat down and, and asked uh, the person who cooked for them uh, how they felt about this issue or that issue. Uh, but the head of the household said, I'm a Christian, and so the whole family, the whole household was baptized into the covenant promises of God. But the thing about baptism, too, is. Um, why we baptize children, one, I think because the Lord commands it, and that's ultimately it. Uh, and we see that in the witness of the Lord when it comes to, uh, remember that section in Mark uh, where the children are being brought to Jesus to uh, be blessed, and what is the response of the disciples? Get lost, right? Go away, go away, kid, you're bothering me. You know, just get, get out of here. And um, Jesus says, no, uh, for the... For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And if you're going to enter into the kingdom of God, you have to be like a little child. And that kingdom of God language is used often paired with baptism. So there's something about children uh, that is different from adults, bless you, uh, that Jesus is pointing out. Now, I'm not 
I do think that that's actually true, that there are things about kids that we lose into our adulthood that Jesus is saying, this is why you, this is how you enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not like Sarah McLaughlin saying that we're all born innocent and you have to be like a sweet, lovely child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. I actually thought that's what Jesus might have meant and then I had kids and realized that that was wholly untrue. In fact, uh, if that were the case, I wouldn't have had to put hooks on the cabinets to keep them from eating Ajax and things. The other day, I had one of them had pulled the plug, you know, the safety plug out, and was saying, hey, what's this? And was pushing their finger in the, like, uh, ah! Uh, that's to prevent you from doing this uh, naturally, uh, because that is uh, your disposition. So that's not what Jesus is saying. But there are some things. One, it's just the vivid image of the child being brought to the font. I have never, ever seen a baby brought willingly to the font. They either come passively, like what's going on here, or just flat out resistant. And so what a beautiful picture of God's grace, of his pursuit of us. And at, whether they like it, at the end of the day, they're going to be baptized. And whether they like it, at the end of the day, uh, God is pursuing them. Right? So there's that image. There's also the image that, uh, or the, the fact that you know, when you, um, when you come home from a trip, if you have children that are of a certain age or grandchildren or nieces or nephews, you come home from a trip, I mean, you could have been gone for a month and a half. But what's the first thing they ask you when you walk in the door? What'd you bring me? Little jerks. Uh, and I used to be offended by that, but actually it's not coming from a place of selfishness necessarily. Uh, but because they know you as their parent, they actually expect good things from you. They expect good gifts. Jesus had something to say about that. You know, who amongst you, if your child asks for an egg, will give them a scorpion? Right? You know, so uh, in the same way, uh, do we have uh, an expectation that God is actually going to follow through on his promises for us? So too, children can receive a gift without any sense of reciprocation. I mean, no worse feeling in the world than going to a Christmas event and somebody hands you a gift and you have nothing to give them in return. You actually had no intention of giving them anything. And so what you do, like most good Christians, is you lie and you say that you left their gift at home and then you look for something to re-gift later on and uh, take it over. None of you all do that uh, over the house. Or how many of you have thrown a party uh, where you're inviting people only because they've invited you to the last one? Right? Adults love to keep things even. I've never taken my children out to a nice meal and have them push back from the table and say, Dad, next one's on me. <laughs> never has that happened. Uh, no, I mean, they didn't even, I mean, they're not even aware of a check. And if they were, they're like, of course you're going to get it. What? Um, and that actually was a very funny thing for me when, um, uh, as I got older with my parents, when finally my dad got to the point where he would no longer make, make eye contact with me saying, it's time for you to pick up your own tab. Um, but uh, in the same way, those are things that Jesus is saying that are representative of what it means to enter the kingdom of God and how we enter the kingdom of God. And so sacraments, that's another thing. When we talk about communion and baptism, how they work and their effects can't be separated one from another. So it's not as if Communion is received and given in one way, and baptism is something wholly separate from that. And so what I mean by that is this, is holy communion and baptism, is that from God to us, or is it from us to God? 
It's from God to us, right? Right? It's, a, it's about divine initiative of him pursuing us and seeking us out. And so that's why one of the reasons why we changed our communion prayer was there was in the midst of that communion prayer uh, that, uh, that the Scottish church gave us, Scots, uh, that the Scottish church gave us that in the midst of the communion prayer, uh, I like the language and it said uh, that here we present ourselves, our souls and bodies to be a reasonable and holy sacrifice unto thee. Remember that? Well, that came in the midst of the communion service. You said that, then you received communion. Well, that's backwards. That's totally backwards. Uh, because it makes it sound as if, you know, Lord, I realize that, yes, your sacrifice on the cross was enough. But, hey, I got a little part to play in this. Uh, and then I come forward to receive as if I bring something to the table. Whereas the real prayer book, the 1662, has that prayer of presenting ourselves as a live, holy and reasonable sacrifice when? after we receive communion, right? Divine initiative, we come forward and receive, and then as a response to that, we say, I'm yours. I'm totally yours, right? Because if it was the other way around, we'd be in real big trouble. And in the same way, uh, and in the same way with baptism, we bring nothing to the table. It's about God's initiative toward us. Now, if you look at the articles, uh, what, it, what it says about the sacraments, and again, what it says about communion is true about what it says about baptism. It says that those who rightly receive them. So when it comes to communion, you can come back at me on this if you want. What is it that makes Jesus present in the communion? The faith of the believer. The gifts of God for the people of God. Take and eat this and write it. What do you receive him by faith? And feed upon him in your hearts by, uh, how's it go? I do this for, by faith with thanksgiving. Thank you. I, I do do this for a living. Um, uh, so faith is an essential element into re rightly receiving it. So that's why in the article concerning Holy Communion, it says that those who come forward and receive him in faith uh, rightly receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Not literally, it's not transubstantiated, but you do feed upon Christ in a spiritual manner. Uh, but those who come forward that do not have faith, what do they eat? Really stale tasting crackers and port wine. Uh, and in fact, it goes on further, and this is echoing Paul's language in 1 Corinthians, is that actually you're eating and drinking condemnation upon yourself. And so in the same way, if I were just to go out and baptize every child indiscriminately, thinking that that would be effective, it would make a mockery of the sacrament. Right? Because what we have in our tradition are what? Who stands and... Now I, this is one thing I wish that we still did. In the old baptism service, when we asked the parents and the godparents questions, they answered on behalf of the child. Now they still do that, but... Um, but you did it in such a way that you actually said, do you desire to be baptized? And what did the parents and godparents say? I do. Were you baptizing them? No, who are you baptizing? Baptizing the child. Uh, and we pray that God has instilled faith in that child that they might rightly receive. So all every once in a while I get someone to say, hey, I was baptized as a baby, but I didn't come to faith in Jesus until later on in my life. I need to be rebaptized again. And I said, no, you don't. Because you rightly received your baptism in the first place, right? It, it, was, it was efficacious, uh, if you will. And so 
All the sacraments begin with the statement of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, not a sign of what we do or who we are. And there are, as Paul talks about, passages in Scripture uh, where he talks about the Red Sea being a baptism into Moses. Um, and so God's chief grace to undeserving sinners is his plan to unite them uh, to his son. Okay. And so now uh, with baptism, baptism signifying the ritual cleansing that was apparent in the Old Testament, it signifies to us, this is an important word, it signifies to us the forgiveness of sins, and it signifies to us the gift of the Holy Spirit. But there is a difference between the meaning of baptism and what it signifies and its effect. The difference from what it signifies to how it operates. So if you look at the catechism, it says that it's an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace given unto us as a means whereby we receive the same and a pledge of assurance thereof. And so there are three main views that I'm just going to walk through real quick of the relation between the visible sacraments, right? The water, or if you want to take this to communion, the bread and the wine, and the invisible grace. One view is that the sign always conveys the gift automatically by itself so that all those who receive the sign also receive the thing signified. Right? That's, one, that's the Filipino nurses at Navy Hospital in San Diego. The other one is that the sign affects nothing. It signifies the gift visibly, but in no sense or circumstance conveys it. Right? That would be uh, a Baptist view of, of baptism. Uh, now, this is what I think uh, is, is an Anglican view uh, and a biblical view. Uh, the sign not only signifies the gift, but seals or pledges it, and pledges it in such a way as to convey not indeed the gift itself, but a title to the gift. The baptized person receiving the gift by faith which may be before, during, or after the administration of the sacrament. Right? Because we know that it's possible to belong to the invisible church without belonging to the true church, the body of Christ, which is invisible in the sense that its members are known to God alone. This is why St. Augustine said, Many of those within are without, and some of those without are within. John writes in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 19, that there are those who are baptized, but he says, but they are not of us. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, all had been baptized members of Israel, but not all were partakers of Christ. Right? So the visible church consists of the baptized, while the invisible church consists of the regenerate. The best biblical example of this is Acts chapter 8, verses 13 through 24, where Simon Magus, if you have ever uh, read uh, Simon the Magician uh, there, Simon the Magician, it says that he believes, and he's baptized, and then uh, Peter and John come along uh, there, and uh, it says, well, let me just start here. Now, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, one of the other two exceptions to Acts 19. For he had not uh, fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon the magician saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Hey, 
Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. And then he talks about gall and bitterness, and um, um, Simon is, is upset, to say the least. Well, and what we have here is Peter stating clearly, you've been baptized, but what? Your heart is not right with God. And this is not him saying... You know, you, you slipped a little or you've just simply misunderstood the nature of the Holy Spirit in the same way uh, that, uh, that John's disciples did in Acts 19. Uh, but you have no part of it. Right? You've been baptized, but your heart is in such a state that it can't receive the blessings of baptism. And so, yes, you've been baptized, uh, but you've not received the Holy Spirit or anything that it signifies. So, too, Paul in Romans, I'm going to turn here, Romans chapter 2 and verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. And he's actually talking about baptism here. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, and by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And before that he said, Who's the faithful guy, the one who is circumcised and then goes off and does whatever he wants, or the one who is uncircumcised but is faithful to the Lord? Who's really circumcised there? The one who's not been circumcised. He's actually been circumcised, the circumcision of the heart. So, when we baptize a child, one of the things that we, I, well, let me just say this about that. Uh, justification and regeneration are two sides of the same coin. It's impossible to be regenerate without being justified. Right? Now, regenerate is a biological term where justification is a legal term. And it's, but when we talk about justification in the Bible, how do we describe justification? It's by what? Right. Yeah, by grace through faith. Right? It's not by any other means. So it's impossible to reconcile the doctrine that baptism just works automatically for salvation with the view that justification is by... We can't, we can't hold that justification by grace through faith alongside justification by grace through baptism because if faith is necessary salvation, then the unbelieving candidate is not saved through baptism. Now I realize I'm getting into some heady waters here, but we'll flesh it out in a minute. So that's what it means to rightly and worthily receive... And that's where we get to a great question last week of the nature of the heart and what it is that we're receiving. And this is where we get into some dicey territory, talking about the doctrine of election. Right? There are biblical passages, one very clear one, where you can actually be saved in your mother's womb. Anybody know which one that one is? Who said John the Baptist? Free cup of coffee, Shirley Ann. Right for you, in the back. Yeah, John the Baptist. When Mary is talking about uh, having uh, conceived with the Lord Jesus uh, inside of her, uh, she goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth, and uh, John the Baptist leaps with joy, uh, comprehending. What's that? Yeah, breakdancing. Uh, is that a technical term? Did you learn that from Charlie Sharp? So breakdancing uh, there uh, in uh, Elizabeth's uh, womb. So God absolutely can do that. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's, 
And when you talk about it in terms of of election and God knowing uh, who is going to come uh, to faith in him, uh, knowing who will be elected uh, unto salvation, yeah, it's Jeremiah. Before I was even formed, yes. Uh, So there is that, and so for many of us, it's coming to the realization of what Jesus Christ has done for us uh, in his death and in his resurrection. Uh, But normally that doesn't happen at our baptisms, right? It's not, you know, Althea at two or three years old didn't come home and say after her baptism, now I believe, right? I get it. Uh, But we dedicate them unto prayer that they would uh, appropriate that faith uh, for themselves. It's not only a sign of the covenant membership, but a seal or pledge of covenant blessings. Baptism does not convey these blessings to us, but conveys to us a right or title to them, so that if and when we truly believe, we inherit the blessings to which baptism has entitled us. And so uh, I've even run into, so I don't want to say that that faith and baptism are not simultaneous because I've even uh, because we don't see that in the New Testament. So even in the New Testament, we see adults believe and then they're baptized. And in our tradition, children are baptized and then uh, they believe. And I've even run into people who have been baptized in Baptist traditions and they don't become Christians until later on, right? And so that is actually the normative pattern. Since the sacrament is a visible word, that's a wonderful way to do it, and we call it that. So baptism and communion are visible words that are given to us. We have the preached word that you hear, but you actually get to see the gospel played out in those two sacraments. And it's the function of God's word to arouse faith. That's Romans 10. The sacraments stimulate our faith to lay hold of the blessings which they signify and which they entitle us. Archbishop Usher, not to be confused with the rap artist, said, as baptism, I thought that was funny, Usher, as baptism administered to those of years is not effectual unless they believe, so we can make no comfortable use of our baptism administered in our infancy until we, until we believe. All the promises of grace were in my baptism, estated upon me, and sealed, he was Archbishop of Canterbury, and sealed up unto me on God's part. But then I come to have the profit and benefit of them when I come to understand what grant God in baptism hath sealed unto me and to actually lay hold on it by faith. St. Jerome said, They that receive not baptism with perfect faith receive the water, but the Holy Ghost they receive not. And so uh, this idea uh, throughout the scriptures in which the reformers tried to articulate, which was no easy thing, because right now you might still be saying, I have no idea what you just said. Uh, what we're saying, one, is that baptism does not save you any more than me pouring gasoline on you makes you an automobile. Okay, doesn't work. But nor is it just a sign and, and that's it, that God is actually able to affect uh, through the visible word, uh, faith, Uh, in uh, the believer. And the understanding of it is it parallels circumcision in the Old Testament of bringing the child into the covenant promises of God, uh, which they are to appropriate for themselves. As I said last week, that's why confirmation is so important. And right now, in our own denomination, there's a very strong move uh, and may actually succeed in getting rid of confirmation altogether or making it optional. Because we've slid into a bad place 
thinking that baptism is the end-all, be-all, and there's no place for a public declaration of faith in the Lord Jesus, which is what confirmation is. Right? So there comes a point, and if you've never read the, the catechism uh, in the 1662, it's really great. Uh, and it's not just for children, uh, but it talks about all the questions, a lot of what we're talking about. Uh, so uh, what is the outward and visible form, sign or form in baptism? Answer, water, wherein the person is baptized in the name of the Trinity. Question, what is the inward and spiritual grace? A death unto sin and a new birth unto righteousness. For being by nature born in sin and the children of wrath, we are hereby made children of grace. Well, what is required of persons to be baptized? Repentance, whereby they forsake sin and faith, whereby they steadfastly believe the promises of God made to them in that sacrament. And then a really good question, why then are infants baptized when they cannot, by reason of their tender age, they cannot perform them? Because they promise them both by their sureties, that's their godparents, which promise when they come to age themselves are bound to perform. Meaning what? That's not the end of the road. Right? That's why godparents are so important. And so many people pick their godparents like they pick bridesmaids and groomsmen. Right? Or that's the consolation prize because they didn't ask them to do bridesmaids and groomsmen. And every once in a while I'll ask, well, what are godparents for? And people will say things like, well, you know, if we die, that's where the kids go to live. Like, try that, you know, arguing that in court. I don't know where that idea came from. I've tried to find it. It's certainly not in the Bible. Uh, but, and it would be a good thing uh, for that to happen. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But that's not what godparents are for. In fact, when you pick a godparent and they stand with the child at the font and they make these promises, what they're promising and what you've ceded to them is an authority to override even you and your parenting them when it comes to spiritual matters. So I went to seminary with a guy whose father died at a very young age. And uh, after his father died, he was about six years old. Uh, his mother was obviously distraught and wanted uh, some comfort and solace. And so they began to go to the local village church. And they did that for a number of years until he was about eight and his sister was about ten. And then his mother uh, married a Muslim man. And at that point, abruptly, they stopped going to church. They were going to the mosque. They were receiving instruction there. But he and his sister had a godparent, a godly woman, who was underground discipling them, passing them things, books to read, praying for them, relentless uh, in her pursuit of living out the vows that she made. And because of that, he says, that's why... I'm about to be ordained to minister the gospel because she took her vows seriously, right? And, I mean, I hate to do this, and I don't want to limit the Lord, but what if she had just said, well, I guess that's just the way it's going to go? He may not uh, have been uh, in, in that place, although we don't know uh, where he would have been. So when you ask godparents uh, to stand uh, as sureties uh, for your children, that's a really uh, big deal. Now, if you're out there thinking... We've got the worst godparents in the world. Uh, you're with me, because we do too. And one of them's a clergyman, and he's by far the worst. Uh, he shows zero interest 
uh, in, uh, in the spiritual life of, uh, of my child. Uh, but we do have some godmothers who are very good about keeping track uh, of our girls and encouraging them in their faith uh, in uh, the Lord Jesus. So there's a full expectation that there's going to come a point in time, and that's why we have confirmation, where the kids are going to get up and say, those promises that were made for me in baptism, I now appropriate them. I've come to the age of consent when I can say that um, I've obtained my spiritual majority, where I can now say that those promises made for me, I'm ready to lay claim on the benefits. I'm coming forward to claim that which was promised for me uh, by God that was given to my godparents, and now it's mine. And as I've said before, I can understand why confirmation has gone by the wayside, uh, because we basically treat it like a Gentile bar mitzvah. You know, you magically turn 13, and I wish, now, I wish that we were able to get away from that, uh, but the fact of the matter is, uh, it's a wonderful opportunity for us at the Advent, especially through Cameron Cole and the youth ministry, to evangelize and to disciple these kids. Uh, many of them come to know the Lord Jesus in the middle of their confirmation classes. And that's why we don't do away with it. On the other hand, too, if a child says, look, I don't believe in Jesus, we don't want them to be confirmed, not because we're afraid that they'll spoil the moment, but why would you do that? You don't want to embarrass them. You don't want to force them to lie. Uh, and who ends up being the most upset are the parents who are like, but people are coming into the town and we've already ordered the pedophores and this is all happening. And, uh, and, and you can still have the party, uh, but the bottom line is why would you want a child to stand up and confirm their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ when it's not true? Uh, that would be a great disservice to them. And in fact, I respect profoundly the child who has, is able to say, I can't do this. And to articulate that. I feel like you've got some room to work there. Uh, the harder ones are the ones who get up and have not, you know, they're just doing it because of grandma and grandpa and, and, and the pedophores uh, coming afterwards. And so uh, confirmation is, uh, is really important. But I do think that it gets a little bit ridiculous and redundant. So when we have folks that transfer into the Advent from other traditions... Uh, if they've not been confirmed, they're technically supposed to be confirmed. And people say, well, what will that get me? And, I'll, and I tell them, it's like, well, it'll, it'll get you on the vestry because you've got to be confirmed, but otherwise you're a full member. Uh, so there's really no incentive whatsoever to being confirmed. Uh, but if you've come from a tradition, whether it be the Baptist or whether it be any, if you've actually stood before the congregation and you've declared your faith publicly in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've appropriated it, you're confirmed, right? You're confirmed. Uh, it doesn't, you know, a, a bishop, it's great to have one there, but it's not an essential component. In fact, even in the Roman Catholic Church, most Roman Catholics who are confirmed are not confirmed by bishops. They're confirmed by their local pastors. So that's just something that's particular to Anglicanism. Now, the people who are fighting most about trying to incorporate or keep confirmation in the church are who do you think? Bishops. I've actually heard one bishop say, if we don't have confirmation, then what am I supposed to do? I've got some ideas. Um, <clears throat> of, of, I mean, it starts by kind of checking out what your job description is uh, right here, and uh, Paul has a lot to say about that. Uh, uh, but because what they've tried to do is to turn it into a sacramental rite, which is not what it is at all. It's a biblical ordinance, right? It's something that we want. Uh, it's about the kids. They're confirmed, 
So let's just, I mean, this sounds terrible, but let's say the bishop's there and the children get up and they confirm their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They take the vows for themselves and the bishop falls over dead before he had a chance to pray for them. They're still confirmed, right? Because he's witnessed their confirmation. That's really the most important thing. And then as a response to that, he lays his hands on them and prays for them. Right, he prays for them. It's not as if the Holy Spirit was not in their lives before that, uh, that somehow a bishop is imparting the Holy Spirit. Uh, that, that's not how it works. Again, those are exceptions. Uh, but that's why confirmation is really, really, really important uh, in the life of the church. And so, uh, if you have had your child baptized... Uh, what that means is that they have now been incorporated into the visible church and they are heirs of the covenant promises of God. Right? And uh, by prayer and uh, by sticking with them, uh, we have... So when I one of the things in the, in the baptism service is that the reason why a lot of people think that baptism saves is because the language is so strong in that direction. But the reason why the reformers did that and the reason why I believe in it too is because when I baptize a child, I actually believe that God is going to make them a Christian. Right? I actually believe that. I put my trust and faith that the Lord Jesus is going to work out their salvation right? and, and instill in them uh, his Holy Spirit. So that's why the, the prayer book doesn't imagine anyone being baptized not being a Christian. Right? There's this, and then like the next thing it says is that and then when they get to a certain age, you would bring them a confirmation. It's kind of a no-brainer. That's just what happens. Uh, and in the same way, uh, they, become the covenant pro they, they become inheritors of that, uh, but we pray that one day when they do come to faith, if they haven't already in the Lord Jesus, that they would come forward and claim their inheritance. So it's not just a mere sign. Uh, it's a pledge and a seal of the promises of God to the child in the same way, again, that uh, communion is. So what's the highlight of the communion service? I know this is not a fair question because people are going to be reticent to, to answer. At least in the Anglican tradition, the high point, the climax of the service. Almost. Kind of. It's the reception. Right? It's when y'all come forward. I mean, think about it. I mean, don't y'all think that? Like, what's the, what if I, we did all the stuff and y'all, and I said, all right, that's it, y'all go home. And I walked off. Uh, or in the medieval church, what they would do is they'd celebrate communion and only the ministers would partake because they thought that it was enough just to look at it. And that still happens in the Roman Catholic Church today. It was just not in all parishes, but in certain venues. Uh, it's just, it's enough just to look at it to be a partaker of Christ. But even in the reception, is it the actual eating of the bread and the drinking of the wine? No, it's in their faith as they come forward to receive. So I had a parishioner at St. Helena's who had jaw cancer and eventually had to have their jaw removed. And they put an implant in and they had to wire his jaw shut. And he came forward for communion every single time. And he put his hands over his chest. But did I give him a blessing? I, I did, but what I also said was, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee, 
and feed upon him in thy heart by faith with thanksgiving. Drink this in remembrance that Christ... Why? Because his coming forward meant that he spiritually ate and drank of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we tallied who took communion, he made it, right? He, he made it He made it in. Okay, questions, comments, concerns before the right tap to leave. I can't hear you. Okay, just yell. Yeah, that doesn't bend me out of shape all that much. You know, I mean, I, I have a family. Why, do, why, do, why are Protestants, or uh, for the most part, non-Roman Catholics, not admitted to communion in the Roman Catholic Church? You can, under certain circumstances, um, if you're Orthodox, receive communion in a Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and a lot of people get bent out of shape by that. Uh, but I don't, uh, because it's not that I want to go forward. I, I have plenty of Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, but we believe something totally different about what's happening at Holy Communion. And so if coming to the table is also about our unity in the body of Christ, it would make somewhat of a mockery to it. So I'm not bent out of shape at all. I'm very happy for them to come forward to the table because that's our, our tradition, and we I think that's biblical, that all those who profess belief in the Lord Jesus can receive communion. But what they're asking for is an actual doctrinal assent. And not just that. In Beaufort, uh, the Monsignor at the big Roman Catholic Church went on some pilgrimage to Rome and left this guy who had been ordained for six months he was a convert from the Southern Baptist Church, and he studied for his ordination in Rome. Disaster, right? So his very first service was Christmas Eve. And he stood up and he said, all Roman Catholics who, uh, who have made their confession in the last X amount of days, whatever the rule is, are warmly invited to receive communion. Well, that excluded 90% of the regular attenders because they hadn't been to confession. But that's the rule. And they went through. It made it in the newspaper, and it was a big deal. And the guy got ridden. The guy had to come. Monsignor What's-His-Face had to come back from Rome, and, uh, and it was a big mess. But the, them's the rules. Right? Them's the rules. And, and I, and, uh, th so it doesn't bend me, out of, bend me out of shape that much. Andrew, you were saying that in baptism is God's Right. Yeah, that's very good. So the sacraments are also a means of grace. Right? They're a means of grace because of what they signify. And so is it good for you spiritually? And does it actually not move you along to holiness, uh, but does it actually deepen the intimacy that you have with the Lord Jesus to receive communion? Well, I hope that you all say yes, right? I mean, because, because it is that. Because when we gather around, we're being taken up into the heavenly realms, right? To, uh, to partake of him uh, who sits at the right hand of God the Father and intercedes for us. So, um, so there are means of grace. And I think beyond the sacraments, things like praying and Bible study. But what I don't want anyone to think is that by your own actions, you can sanctify yourself. Because if sanctification is something that makes you holy, and we think that we have something to do with it, we're in big trouble. And so that too is 
manward from God, that the Holy Spirit working through us uh, is sanctifying us and giving us over to God. Um, so that that was somebody had mentioned something about uh, John Wesley. John Wesley had kind of a, synchro, uh, a synergistic view of sanctification that he thought, well, God does his part and I do my part in sanctification, not in justification. And um, uh, ask him how that worked out in Savannah, Georgia, when he got ridden out of town on the rail. You mentioned that there's a sound difference in the Catholic So the Roman Catholic Church teaches that it's literally the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And that even though they, w- they would totally say that Jesus' death on the cross once for all is sufficient for the forgiveness of sins. So I don't want anyone leaving here thinking that somehow that we disagree with them about the core of our faith, because we don't. Um, but what they believe is that it literally becomes the body and blood of the Lord Jesus, and uh, which is why you know, they have services of benediction, where they actually have adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, because they believe it's literally Jesus. And at communion, it becomes a representation to God the Father a sacrifice to him. So it's a reenacting of what happened on that Good Friday in Jerusalem, which is why sometimes you'll hear the Roman Catholic priest say, this Mass is celebrated with intention for Bill Smith. Uh, The idea being that you have this service uh, which would give merit to Bill Smith while he's in purgatory that ultimately might get him into heaven. Uh, or it might be celebrated with the intention for the people of Nicaragua or something like that. Uh, so the big difference though is we don't see it as a sacrifice. That's why we say who was once for all satisfaction oblation for the uh, satisfaction for all the sins of the, the whole sins of the world. Uh, but what we see it as is uh, not just again a mere memorial either that we do believe that we spiritually eat and drink of the body and blood. But that means after communion, like the prayer book used to say, any leftover bread, give it to the curate. Let him go home and make a sandwich out of it. Now we think, oh, uh, when, uh, when we do that. But the fact of the matter is the Lord consecrates as much as he eats. And it remains bread, it remains wine, and except for those who partake of it in faith. I don't know if that helps, Kelly. There are some churches Mm-hmm. Or dunking or whatever. Um, what is the spiritual answer to that? Because I went to a church for private school, but because I was baptized as a baby, they told me it didn't take. That wasn't, that you had to be baptized by an emergent for it to take. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I said I was going to end, but y'all can leave. Sorry. Uh, I'll be in there in a minute. But the, um, yeah, so actually, uh, the New Testament, you know, Paul makes a couple of comparisons And one, he talks about being baptized in a cloud. He also talks about the baptism in the Red Sea, where they both came, where they came through on dry land. Um, And so making those parallels, the mode of baptism is inconsequential. If I've hammered away anything, it's not about the actual act. It's not, I mean, this would be a difference between Roman Catholicism and Anglicanism. It's not about the right right. You know, it's not about me saying the right words and doing things the right way. It's about faith, right? Which is why in our tradition, y'all can totally baptize somebody if you want. I mean, and, it's, and it counts. It totally counts. Um, 
And so I would just say to them that, um, you know, it's, I think that the New Testament is not insistent on the fact that, that you have to be baptized by immersion. I think the point that they would make is they would say that biblically, from their perspective, you have to be baptized as an adult by immersion. That being baptized as a child is, doesn't count. Uh, and I can, I'll argue with them over that. So, but in fact, funny enough, uh, the Orthodox do immerse their babies. So they actually take the baby and they dip them in the water. Um, but that still wouldn't count for them. You mentioned what Wesley thought, mm-hmm. and you also mentioned not to confuse sanctification with justification. That's right. I'm sure that's another two or three Sundays, but at some point that would be nice to understand. Yeah, and that's key. That was one of the big fights in the Reformation was understanding justification as distinct from sanctification. Absolutely essential, and we will. All right, y'all, you can write me angry emails. I get them all the time now. Go in peace, the love, and serve the Lord.